Welcome to Of Note. In this four-part mini-series, we're having candid conversations with investors and leaders around the state of South Carolina about the one thing at the top of every entrepreneur's mind, funding. This week, we're discussing the differences between angel investors and venture capitalists with Venture South and Good Growth Capital. Now, over to Laura. All right, audience, I am super excited to have on the call with us both Paul and Amy and really to kind of talk about uh, maybe to help you all differentiate, you know, who should you be pitching to? A VC, an angel, both? What do these things mean? You know, I feel like we tend to use these terms interchangeably when in fact they're not the same thing and they're not always the right fit for you where you are in your funding journey. Um, so actually, I'm going to kick it over to Paul and let Paul introduce himself since we have go ahead take the floor introduce yourself tell tell the audience about yourself great thanks laura uh my name is paul clark i'm one of the co-founders and managing directors of venture south we are an angel investment company as uh laura mentioned uh we invest in startup companies in the southeast uh through our angel groups and funds that we run from greenville south carolina my name is amy salzhauer i'm one of the five managing partners of good growth capital we have two stage different kinds of fund families, one that invests in pre-seed and seed stage venture capital, and the other that does seed through series B venture capital, and I'm sure we'll touch on that later. We, um, we look for superior defensible technology companies that fit pressing societal needs. So that's a very specific mandate. We're usually investing in transformative science we're the most active fund in the state. We've got a, a, over $70 million in assets under management. Um, we have four managing partners here in South Carolina, and we try to give everybody in South Carolina a good listen to if we can. And then we also have a partner and venture partners and advisors in Boston, North Carolina, um, Baltimore, Northern California, Southern California, and Chicago. How do both of your funds work, right? So Basically, where is the source of funding coming from for you, Amy? So we have um, LPs, so limited partners. Those are investors who invest into our funds. Uh, a significant number are high net worth individuals. And then we have family offices and institutions. We've also uh, welcomed uh, Kiosera AVX in the upstate as a significant investor into the fund. You know, we really work hard with our entrepreneurs and helping our companies grow. So we actively try to find investors who uh, might be able to help our companies grow, although not everybody meets that criteria. A lot of people just want a check to be written back to them, and, and that's great. We also have a lot of um, limited partners who want to have what they call co-investment opportunities. That means that we're investing in a company and we have extra allocation in that company for our limited partners to invest directly. And we're very active in doing that. So for example, we had one company that we invested in recently where the funds themselves put in about three and a half million dollars and our limited partners put in $17 million. So that's a significant piece there as somebody who might be interested in our fund, they might be interested in the co-investment opportunities. A large proportion of our investors are actually professional investors and they're looking for our sourcing and our diligence and uh, you know that kind of expertise that we're bringing and then these co-investments. So what would you say is like 
the average uh, amount a limited partner is going to put into a fund when you're doing a fundraise? What what's sort of is there a sweet number that you tend to see? Sure. I mean, we have in the pre-seed and seed stage fund, it's a minimum investment of $250,000, which is called over the course of about three years. In that bigger fund, um, in our seed and series A stage fund, it's a half million dollar minimum for an individual and then one to five million dollars for family offices and institutions. So you tell me jump over to Paul perfectly. So Paul, I mean, that's 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 a bit of a difference from what you experience with your member base, I think anyways. And maybe so let's talk a little about the source of your funds as as an angel versus a lot of what Amy's just talked about. Yeah, so angels are people who are investing their own money into companies directly. Um, they do it through Venture South, but it's it's them investing each time in a given company that they like the look of uh, to invest in. So it's a slightly different variety of similar kind of idea. We're all investing in early stage startup companies, but angels are typically investing their own money and VCs are not. The way that Venture South works is we have about 400 people who are members of our group and they listen each month to the companies that are on our docket. And if they like what they see, they opt in. And if they don't, they pass for that month and come back next month. Between those members, they're investing anywhere from nothing, if they don't like anything that they see in a year, to you know a million dollars over the course of, say, 20 potential investment opportunities in a, in a year. Something that's going to go and invest through a VC, you know, they're probably a little more... Um experienced perhaps as a as, as an investor and they're gonna they already are opting in for investing by putting big chunks of money into an a big fund like good growth capital versus and again yes you're providing i mean you are providing the due diligence and oversight and recommendations those kinds of things but for for venture south really what they're paying for is to be a member right and there's a cost associated with being a member correct there is that's right yeah well, and I love angel investors. I think a lot of angel investors are are very experienced investors. Um, will often, you know, be investing alongside or really value the sourcing of the angel groups. We are also the managing partners at GGC are also significant investors in our own funds. So we're investing on our own behalf alongside our LPs, and I think that's one of the great things about angel investment groups as well. They're really, you know. Your money is is where your mouth is. So okay, maybe maybe you've helped me kind of. So for Paul, what what's an accredited angel investor? What does that mean? So to make an investment in a private company, you have to be what's called an accredited investor, and that doesn't mean you have to take a test or have some kind of certificate. It just means you have to have a certain net worth or income threshold that you have more than. Um, you can actually also take a series, uh, uh, one of the series licenses to be an accredited investor, but, but for the most part, it's based on wealth or income, um, and you just need to want to do it. So that's the other, the other big criteria. Um, so, do you feel like that's typically like a a hurdle uh, that for for getting you know, I'll say members for you all is just explaining what that is and. You know, people maybe being apprehensive to to get through that checkbox, or they're just like, no, it really is that easy. Let's go do this. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's really easy to, to check the box that you are that person. Obviously, not everybody is. So um, I think it's about the top 13 or 14 percent of, of wealth or income fit in that box. But that's still 16 million people or 16 million households in the United States. And there are plenty of people that could do this. 
and we have 400 members of our group. So we've got plenty of market to go penetrate uh, before we've exhausted the supply of potential angel investors. So why do you feel like people aren't participating as angels? Well, I think they are. They, they increasingly are. Um, certainly, it hasn't been a popular pastime for everybody for a long time, especially in South Carolina. But people are increasingly doing it. Um, you know, our group has added 100 members in the last year. Um, and there's countless other ways through angel list, through different rolling funds, through lots of other mechanisms that people can get involved if they if they want to. It's really a question of learning that it exists, first of all. And then secondly, learning about how, how to do it. And if you can write a half million dollar check, then good growth capital might be a great way for you to do it. If you if you want to do five thousand dollar checks, then Venture South might be a great way to do it. If you want to do educational activity, then we all have different you know, educational content we provide. Um, it's just finding the flavor and the activities that suit your interests and personalities. Uh, and eventually you'll find somewhere to do it that you like. I think there's also a fundamental difference in investing strategy. And a lot of times you might want to be an angel investor and invest in a fund. If you're an angel investor, you might be investing in, say, two or three companies that you really get excited about, or maybe you really understand those companies. If you're investing in a fund, you're diversifying your investment strategy. You're going to have, you know, say, 30 or 40 companies within that fund. Um, and so you're saying, well, you know, one might be a hit and one might do terribly and it hopefully it will balance out. So we're aiming for a six to eight X return in our general funds. And, uh, you know, that's that's a pretty high return. No, that that's that's a great further sort of explanation for, for our audience. I hope, you know, I think. Maybe, and again, this doesn't have to be necessarily in the category of VC versus angels, just for your all's funds, you know, when when do you typically feel like you're investing? What's your average deal that you're looking at? Is it is it earlier stage? What And again, I feel like depending on where you are, early stage can be different numbers, right? So, you know, for, for our listenership, you know, what's sort of your ideal sweet spot, good growth capital for, for what you see come across your table? Sure. Well, first of all, let's talk about what comes across the table. We see about 10,000 deals a year, plus or minus. That's a huge, huge amount of deal flow to sort through. And then, you know, we're only investing in uh, in 30 to 40 companies in the, the lifetime of a fund. So I think that can seem intimidating for entrepreneurs. Um, I think it is a little bit intimidating, honestly. It's hard to get funded by us. And um, it doesn't mean that your company doesn't have potential. It might not fit our particular investing strategy. So we are looking for these companies that, as I said, have a superior defensible tech science or technology that's going to meet a pressing societal need. And we're looking for companies that can exit really well in four to seven years in any market that they mature into. So we're trying to find companies where the the exit potential, the return profile is completely uncorrelated to the broader market. That's a very specific investing strategy. That being said, we are willing to work with a scientist who has a fantastic invention really while they're still in the lab while we might be helping them license their technology. Our team really has world-leading experts in technology commercialization, and we know how to grow those kinds of companies. And so that's really our sweet spot. Okay, Paul, same same thing. Like what, 
you want to talk about how your deal flow, any of that, like what is an ideal deal for, sure. for, for you all? So we're looking at Southeastern based companies that are raising somewhere between $200,000 and $2 million. Typically that's the first time they raise money from outside of their, you know, friends and family or credit card. And it is, uh, it's as simple as that. That's uh, generally speaking pretty early. We don't honestly care a ton about what they actually do. Half our deals are in medical, half our deals are in something else. Um, we're also looking for companies that can grow very quickly and exit. Um, but our big criteria are in the Southeast and are raising that kind of early stage capital. For the founders that are listening, how do they help best prepare themselves to talk to either of you? Um, given that you've laid out sort of your investing thesis is, you know, what, what should they, what do they need to know? What do they actually need to know? Because I feel like Shark Tank does your all's jobs, no favors at all. So from my perspective, they need to have done a little bit of homework to make sure they actually do fit the basic investment criteria that, that I said. And if they do, they just need to send us an email or find some other way to get in contact with us. It's really not supposed to be too much harder than that. Um, the really good ones have done more homework than that, know what they're talking about, have thought out their idea, understand the reason why they're raising a particular amount of money, have an idea of what the journey of raising money from outside investors looks like over a long period, um, and generally just maintain a sense of just real credibility throughout the whole process of talking to us. I think Paul said that so well, and I have full sympathy and empathy with the um founders. So I was a founder myself. I raised tens of millions of dollars in venture capital, and it's not easy. It can be an intimidating process to raise either from angels or from venture capital investors. I think Paul will probably agree with me. Sometimes people think they need to have a really slick, well-designed presentation. That is not what we're looking for at all. We want to hear a great idea with real potential. We want to hear that you've done the kind of homework that Paul was talking about. But we don't need a design firm to design your presentation or make a beautiful, glossy, slick brochure. The graphic designer, the past graphic designer, me is like cringing hearing that. But yeah, I, I get it. So, you know, I, I mean, I've really appreciated the opportunity to sort of be a fly on the wall, virtual fly on the wall, listen in on some of your all's due diligence sessions that you have every Thursday morning. I think for me, that might be a little surprising for our listeners is a common thing I, I tended to hear was I would want to work for that company or I would love to be part of that team. And I, I think that gets overlooked potentially by even the founders is, you know, that this isn't just about writing a check, right? Like you all really are jumping in this boat with them and you want to be part of something that it not only just excites you, but that the people around it are, are individuals just like you can really be collaborating with. Do you want to elaborate on that a little? Sure. I think that's a really good point. We work so hard on behalf of our companies, helping them grow. We have a lot of respect for our entrepreneurs uh, we treat them with respect. We expect the same thing back. You know, it helps it helps them and it helps us if they're really coachable is something you'll hear investors talk about, whether a founder is coachable or not. Um, I think that it's also you know, understanding your own limitations as a founder. No one person or one team at the outset knows everything they're getting into. So really being honest with us, not just to tell us what's going well, but what you need help with or what's going poorly 
that's really important. We'll be helping with things, everything from you know, hiring to contacting customers to helping with the next round of financing. And that's part of our job. That's that's not a favor. That's something you should be asking us to do and relying us on us to do. And uh, we should be, we're getting paid for that. So you, if you're choosing venture capital or angel capital, but especially venture capital, um, you know, we have a management fee that says we're going to be doing that kind of work on behalf of the companies. So Paul, how, how hands-on do you feel like you all are with your, with your portfolio? Is it, is it daily? Is it quarterly? What does that relationship sort of look like once you have decided to make an investment? What, what does that, what's the expect, what can a founder anticipate from that regard? Yeah. So I think it varies depending on the deal and the situation and the experience of the management team and a whole bunch of other factors as well. Um, but at a very minimal level, we expect you to keep a surprise of what's going on. That might just be quarterly updates that you send to your investors. And you know, at a minimum level, that's probably fine. Um, good entrepreneurs and good investors have a much closer informal relationship than that, where we're always exchanging ideas, connections, uh, suggestions, criticisms, you know, everything to try to make this investment and this company as successful as we can between us. And that might be because we serve on the boards of directors of the companies. It might just be a Slack message that you send me, you know, at 1130 on a Friday night because you just had an idea and you want some input. You know, a good, a good investor of any kind will answer you with, with some suggestions. Um, so the more proactive you are about those things, the more impressive you'll be to uh, your investors, the more likely they are to say good things about you to the next round of investors, the more likely they are to invest in your second company when you come around to do that as well. Um, so we try to encourage long-term, productive, transparent relationships uh, with our with our portfolio companies because we're all more successful when that happens. Well, I want to bring up maybe that proactiveness about this. So uh, AJ Rakiki of Sprockets is part of this season lineup, and uh, some some really big advice he held on during his interview was around this idea that the best time in raising money is not even when he actually needed the money yet that he had done. I don't know. I think he had a spreadsheet of like four or 500 investment firms from all over the U.S. and was, you know, keeping them apprised of sort of their business even before he was raising money. Is that, you know, should a founder be actively building those relationships well in advance before ever asking for money? What's what's your take? I would say, yes, it's certainly helpful. Uh, I don't think it's absolutely critical that you have those relationships before you start out as a founder. You can develop them as you're doing the fundraising, but it certainly does not hurt if you come to raise a round of money and everybody already knows who you are and trusts you and finds you credible. So to the extent that you can help make that happen, I think that's a good use of your time. There are 10,000 other things a founder has to be doing at the same time. So I understand that that's not always a priority, but it certainly can't hurt if you can have some good found, uh, funding relationships ahead of time. First of all, I agree with everything that Paul is saying. That being said, we really try to make an effort not to consider founders just based on our previous relationships. And part of that is because we are a diverse fund with diverse managers and we invest in a lot of diverse founders. We don't give them a preference. We just try to really source very uh, diversely. So if we uh, focus just on the prior relationships, you know, traditionally, under 6% of venture capital goes to women, right? Um, minority founders have the same kinds of proportions. 
in our um, in our portfolio, about seventy five percent of our teams have a diverse founder. Right now, I think about thirty seven percent of the CEOs are women, and another thirty some odd percent are people of color. Um, and so, in order to do that, to make sure that we're really listening to all those founders, we've found that we have to try and make sure that anybody with a great idea gets a, a chance to present it and pitch. And I, I agree with Paul. It's just as simple as sending an email. So I think the takeaway for our listeners, you don't find that being pesky or too premature, given that you're seeing 10,000 deals a day or a year. And, you know, I don't know, I forget what your all's deal flow is, but, but, but you all welcome sort of founders to be engaging with you even before an active fundraiser of any kind. Hey, I love this. I love doing this. I'm so excited to hear the new ideas. That doesn't mean that, you know, I can understand every new idea. We invest about 45% in health tech and I lead the health tech team. So I'm more likely to be more excited about a health tech team. Uh, Maureen and David from our fund lead green tech and advanced materials. Carolyn LaSala, who's done stuff like she... Uh, was one of the original producers of iTunes, launched and led iTunes Europe, launched and led the App Store, right? She's going to get excited if you send her some really interesting data sciences deal. We love what we do. That's why we're doing it. So I really, we, we've, hit, we've hit on a lot of information in actually a very succinct period of time. Uh, I wanted to, is there anything that you all want to go deeper on that we didn't cover in the past 22-ish minutes? There's just one thing I would I would um, say, and maybe Paul, if you want to speak to it, one of the things that uh, entrepreneurs often ask is what should be in the presentation. And what I want to see is not just that it's a great piece of science, but that it's a really great investment opportunity. McKinsey and some other groups have Minto Pyramid advice on how to create a presentation that focuses on what they call a mento period, M-I-N-T-O. And that's always a great way to sort of structure your presentation. So not just to tell me that it's a great piece of science, but it's a great piece of science. And because it's a great piece of science, a lot of people are going to need that science. And then they're going to buy the, the product that's being made. And so it's going to be a great investment. That's really the way you want to go. You want to be supporting um, your thesis that you're showing us a really great investment opportunity. And so even it's not enough of a box to check that it's something that's been patented. That, that, that's, that's, that's too probably for you all too low of a, of a threshold per se. It needs to, like you've said, go beyond that and really show that what you have created truly has market potential. And, and I guess, do you feel like that's a struggle that you, you run across with a lot of your your deals or is that part of some of that coaching that you all do offer when you are sort of trying to get something ready for investment with you all is, is trying to understand that real market viability of, of the science? If it's a great enough idea, we will absolutely be doing that coaching and helping to understand the market, or we might be changing the market and suggesting a different market. Um, I know Laura has been on some of our deal flow calls and you'll hear that happen, right? Somebody thinks they've got a great application for one thing. The team says, oh, I don't know about that, but maybe let's try this other thing. And then that goes back to whether the entrepreneur wants to be coached. They, you know, you can take or leave our advice 
at that point. Uh, the other hand, at that moment, you could also take or leave our money. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, well let's, let's, I, I, it's, it's been a while, but I, I have enjoyed sitting in again as again, you know, pre-COVID, physically sitting in on some of the 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 presentations that the founders do to your member bases, right? Let's talk a little bit about that process because you know, pre-COVID, they sort of had a dog and pony show that the founder had to go on across the state. Um, let's talk a little like so. Let's just say you know, it's it's enough of your all's interest. You're you're you will put a founder up um, for consideration with your member base. Like, what what is that like? What's what do you demand of of the founder? Uh, so people generally like to invest in people that they've met. So we do generally like to have people in the same room, at least for a little while. It doesn't have to go to every single place. We have a Venture South location, but it's always good to meet a few people. So we do try to encourage that even post-COVID or during the end stretch of COVID. Um, what we ask our uh, presenters to do generally, though, is online. So they do a Zoom meeting, they do a presentation, they try to develop a rapport with the audience, they try to present interesting information for 20 minutes, do some good Q&A, um, and then move into our diligence process uh, if there's enough appetite for my members after that. So um, to answer the question about what should be in the presentation, um, maybe stepping back one piece before that, um, we're getting connected probably by a cold email, so it should be short and understandable to somebody who has 10 other cold emails sitting in their inbox to read. Then I would generally like to have a one-page summary of what you're doing, just so I can understand it. Uh, and the shorter and more succinctly you can explain that in layman's terms, particularly if it's something deeply scientific. Um, most of our members are not scientists. So um, if you're raising capital from us, we need to be able to understand what you're doing. Um, those are the two first like, roadblocks to getting into front of our group. Then you've got to present something that's interesting to people, which is hard to do. Um, needs to be well thought out. needs to be a story that hangs together well, um, which can take some work. Um, and, you know, a 10 page slide deck should be able to cover the key highlights that you need to present to somebody in 15 minutes. After that, we are going to ask you every question we can think of. Um, you don't have to prepare materials for that, but you need to be able to demonstrate that you've thought about more or less everything that could impact your business. You don't have to have the right answer to every single thing, but we want to find somebody who's well prepared uh, and also receptive to learning along the way, as, as Amy mentioned. So those are the things that you need to do to impress us. And at the end of that process, if we're impressed, then our members will write a check. And if not, we will try again next time. Or maybe that, and maybe Amy, you would agree with this. The story part is so important, mainly in part because you as the investors might not be the customer, the end user, whatever the technology is. And, and, but you're having to make a financial decision about you know, helping build the technology along the way. So do you find that that's sort of hard to separate those two that, you know, while you know, this mousetrap isn't, I don't need a mousetrap, but that doesn't mean that somebody else doesn't need a mousetrap. Is that, is that a hard differentiator for, for you all as investors or no? Well, first of all, I would say that the kind of process that Paul was just describing is going to be valuable for any entrepreneur, no matter what, to get those kinds of questions and that kind of feedback. Our process is a little bit different because we actually do have a huge amount of scientific expertise on the fund. Um, so you will be facing people who really do deeply understand your science, um, will be questioning you on the regulatory structure. We often work with, I think we work on average for 13 months with our teams before we even make an investment. That doesn't mean that we can't turn around and invest in something rapidly, and we have, um, but we have to be really 
comfortable with that. And we also often are in touch with and understand uh, the demand from the customers and from the potential acquirers of that company before we've even made the investment. We have a, a company that started off here in South Carolina, and we had multiple acquirers at the table before the first check was written. Wow. For our listeners, how, again, you've laid, you've laid the gauntlet down that they are free to engage with you all at any level. What should a founder do? What's their, what's their call to action with you all? How can they get in touch with you? Go to our website, venturesouth.vc, or email me, paul at venturesouth.vc. That's it. Sure. You can go to our uh, website as well goodgrowthvc.com or else if you'd like to send an email send an email to funding at goodgrowthvc.com all right guys well thank you uh and listeners i hope you enjoyed hearing from both an angel and a vc and what you can do to best position yourselves for either one of these specific funds thanks for joining us today if you enjoyed the episode please rate and review join us on linkedin or facebook at scribble innovation and don't forget sign up for our newsletters Special thanks to my co-host, Laura McIntosh, the Managing Director of the South Carolina Department of Commerce's Office of Innovation. I'm Joseph Nuther, co-founder of Design Sensory and PopFizz. Additional thanks to our team, producer and editor, Hunter Foster, sound engineers, Mike Deering and Samuel Thomas, original music by Matt Honkinen, with additional support from Tia Nelson, Sarah Plemons, Ronnie Wilson, Robin Hendricks, and Lexi Williams. <laughs>